welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast is about healthcare policy. And I invite back Dr. Bishal Giwali, who's an associate professor in Canada, in Queen's University, who has been on this show before. And Bishal has an amazing journey into career-wise, which we want to talk about. But uh, his research has focused a lot on healthcare policy, drug pricing, and also how can he really improve the access to cancer drugs in low middle income countries. Vishal has been previously on the show. I invited him back to talk about the accelerated approval pathway by the FDA, which has been established um, since the early 90s. But what's really important is, and what Vishal brings is various viewpoints, how the accelerated approval pathway from a regulatory perspective sometimes gets abused and is not really um, followed or what is supposed to be done uh, with the accelerated approval pathway is not always happening to the same extent it was supposed to happen. So I've asked Dr. Bishal Giwali to uh, join me on Healthcare Unfiltered and he generously accepted the invite and we actually taped this podcast on Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, November 25, 2021 for context. Before I air the episode, please subscribe to the show, rate the show, let me know how I am doing. Visit the website www.shadinabhan.com and check out all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Bishal Giwali on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it is uh, such a pleasure to uh, host a dear colleague and um, a friend, um, as well as a, a prior guest on the Healthcare Unfiltered show, Dr. Bishal Giwali, who will introduce himself again. I'm pretty sure many of you know him and listen to him. I'm, I'm a big fan of his work, so I get always, uh, as the host, I'm very selfish. I have to bring back uh, folks I admire their work, but we're going to talk a lot about fun things including some of the recent awards he just received in uh, his native country of uh, Nepal. Bishal, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. For folks who have no clue when we are taping this, we are taping this literally on Thanksgiving Day, Thursday, December, uh, February, uh, November, <laughs> 25, 25, 2021. And it is going to air in a couple of weeks. By the time this airs, it will be the beginning of 2022. Anyway, welcome to the show. Appreciate you taking time. And this is a very stylish T-shirt that you have on. Uh, tell the listeners uh, a little bit about you and uh, what you work, what you do. You have a fascinating journey. But as you tell us a little about yourself, I really want to know a little bit more, learn about this recent award that you received and I saw on social media, well-deserved, but it was from your home country and what that meant to you. Thanks a lot, Sadi. It's always a pleasure to be in your, in your, in your podcast uh, and thank you for continuing to invite me and for sending me the t-shirts. I, I like to say that I have home and always as is. So this is my home kit. Excellent. When I'm in US, uh, next time in person with you, I'll be putting on a black one, my away kit. I'm going to send you more. Yeah. <laughs> so my name is Bisal Gewali. I'm from Nepal. My home country is Nepal. I did my medical school there. Then I went to Japan. I did my medical oncology training there. I got a PhD in Japan as well. 
Then I went back to Nepal. I worked in Nepal for around six months. After which I moved to Harvard for a research fellowship at uh, Program on Regulation Therapeutics and Law portal at Harvard under uh, Dr. Aaron Kesselheim's mentorship. Uh, and after a year there, I moved to Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. And currently, I am an associate professor in oncology and public health sciences in Queen's University. Um, and uh, recently, I was back in Nepal in my home country trying to do some global oncology work. And I got uh, an, uh, an honorary, uh, sorry, a, a visiting professorship from Karnali Academy of Health Sciences. It's a government medical school in Nepal, in a very rural part of Nepal. Uh, and I also got uh, a visiting scientist uh, award from uh, Nepal Health Research Council, which is a government wing of uh, uh, related to health research in Nepal. Uh, so yes, uh, it was a very uh, happy moment for me to get that recognition from government institutions, public institutions in my own country back home. I think you are honestly one of the most humble people I know. Your accomplishments, and I say that genuinely, you have done so much over the past several years in such a short period of time. And what I love about you, Bishal, is you stay true to your colors um, and you stay true to um, just being humble and, uh, and the same person that you were five years ago, which is really, really very rare, truly very rare nowadays. Thank you, Sadi. That's really kind of you. I, I, I look at people like you and I learn. I learn oh. from the best. So, so how do you spend your day? Is it like, so you, you do a lot of health policy, but what type of patients do you treat? So I have three clinics. Uh, one, uh, two of them are GI, and one is GU slash breast. I used to do CNS before, nowadays I'm not doing CNS. So it's basically GI, GU, and breast uh, now. Uh, that's my clinical responsibility. I have uh, one day of uh, dedicated for teaching in public health sciences. Uh, I'll be starting a formal course from uh, next uh, uh, next uh, session uh, in the Department of Public Health Sciences. Uh, planning to actually launch uh, a course or a seminar uh, on global oncology and, and cancer policy as a part of the public health sciences curriculum uh, for graduate as well as undergraduate students. And rest of the time is my research time. Uh, and in, in research, uh, as I mentioned, I have, I have two dimensions. One is cancer policy, which involves regulatory policy, clinical trial designs, uh, real-world translation of uh, trial data, uh, and global oncology, which is trying to improve cancer research and, and cancer care in low and middle countries. So um, under those uh, dimensions, I uh, have been fortunate to be a part of multiple uh, initiatives. Uh, for example, I am a, a member of the WHO Essential Medicine List Committee uh, for uh, selecting the essential medicine list for uh, cancer uh, drugs uh, applicable in low and middle income countries. Also, a member of the ASCO Health Equity and Outcomes Committee, ESMO MCBS Committee, ESMO Public Policy Committee. Um, and uh, and I and I forgot to mention that uh, uh, I have been uh, honored to receive uh, the Clinician Scientist Award from Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. So I get my salary support from Ontario Institute for Cancer Research, which is funded by the, the government of Ontario in Canada. So, so your research um, 
you don't necessarily initiate and conduct clinical trials, but you're interested in the policy and the regulatory aspect. And on the clinical front, you treat patients with GI and you. So, Michelle, I don't think I've ever asked you this, uh, although I've you know we've been talking for a long time, but I've never asked you this. So for somebody who was not essentially from the U.S. originally, I mean, I wasn't born in the U.S. either. What got you interested in regulatory and policy and FDA? Like, was there something that just made you very interested in doing this? Because you went to medical school elsewhere and you did your PhD elsewhere, but you're very interested in the regulatory component in the U.S. specifically. What what triggered that? Yeah, uh, that's a question that probably nobody has asked before. Uh, so... Uh, you're absolutely right. Like I did not get trained in any, you know, North American institutions. Um, and I did not have any, like during my training period, I did not have any uh, like big name mentors taking care of me or, or helping me to, you know, do, do big research or, or get to the podiums of ASCO and ESMO. Uh, I was a lowly oncologist, uh, just a medical doctor from Nepal who was trying to become an oncologist. And at that time, there was no institution in Nepal who trained you in oncology. So I had to find a destination elsewhere outside of the country. Uh, my, my goal was, my, I did not even know like what uh, research meant. I had not published a single paper. Uh, in fact, the first paper I ever published was in 2014. Uh, and it was a letter to the editor. Uh, my real, like a full length paper, the, the first one was in 2015. So it has not been a long time. Uh, so I, I was trying to become a medical oncologist and I was trying to look for opportunities and I came across a, um, and, and I did not have good financial means. Like I don't come from a wealthy background. Um, so I was trying to look for an opportunity where I did not have to invest a lot and still could become a medical oncologist. So you know, coming to US, doing USMLE, all of that takes lots of money. And I did not have any uh, any funds to do, uh, to uh, go through that route. But I came across this uh, government, Japanese government scholarship uh, to uh, go and study in Japan. So like I did not have to pay a single thing and they would cover for my uh, all related costs. So that sounded like a great opportunity. Um, and I was always fascinated with Japan and Japanese culture from the beginning. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't know that uh, I had to learn Japanese language. If I had known that before, probably <laughs> I might have made a different decision. Uh, but I went there and obviously you can't expect patients to speak English. So uh, I ended up learning Japanese language as well. Um, so that's how I, I ended up in Japan uh, doing medical oncology. But even during that phase of training, uh, you know, the classical way we were taught in Nepal was we used to read textbooks and we used to trust what our teachers told us. So if someone asked me, why would you use ciprofloxacin in enteric fever, which is a very common disease in Nepal, my answer would be because my, my, my teachers do it or because Harrison's uh, a textbook of medicine tells me to do it. But going to Japan for the first time, I realized what evidence-based practice means because now if someone asked, why do you use, you know, uh, Paclitaxel in, in triple negative breast cancer. The answer was not because this book told it, but they would start citing trials. They would say, based on this trial, we are doing that. 
you know, stop regimen, tumors uh, of glioblastoma based on this, uh, this trial. So, and then I started to realize, okay, that's how evidence is generated. So now you can see where I'm coming from. In 2012, for the first time, I'm realizing the evidence comes from clinical trials. Uh, and uh, then I started to learn more and more about it. Uh, and my first point of realization, uh, I guess, was when uh, we were using a regimen for a, for a patient with cancer that was uh, published in New England Journal and was supposed to be good, but the patient immediately progressed. And what I saw in clinic was not matching with what I was expecting from reading the trial paper. And so I started to think, like, why does the publication say there will be a median PFS of 12 months, but my patient is progressing in two months. Uh, and that's when I started to think more about like, why is this mismatch? What am I missing? Um, and I tried to, I started to learn more and more about it. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember which trial was that? Uh, I think uh, that at the time it must have been, uh, it must have been the Ramushirumab trial in colorectal cancer, I guess. Yeah. Uh, then uh, in I remember my first paper clearly because in 2014, Lancet had a commission of uh, you know Lancet publishes a lot of commissions nowadays. At the time, Lancet had a commission on cancer care and research in India, China, and Russia. So they picked these three big low and income countries, and they were trying to dissect how cancer research and 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 uh, care is going on in these three countries. And the bottom line message was these three countries alone, China, India, and Russia, will have 50% of the total cancer population of the of the world in, in, in next few years. Um, but is the infrastructure uh, good enough to take care of that? And uh, we had journal club at my institution in Japan, and I was supposed to present one of the papers. And I was just trying to go through major journals thinking, which papers would I present? And I came across this Lancet Commission paper. And coming from Nepal, which is exactly between India and China, it was very fascinating for me to read a Lancet Commission on cancer care in India and China. And I was reading about all those major developments happening both in the research and the cancer treatment front. But I was wondering, like, what about Nepal? What's happening there? And like, it's it's a small country between these two big giants, and and like everybody is forgetting about Nepal. But potentially, Nepal could also take some mileage out of these amazing things happening in these two big neighboring countries. So I wrote a letter to the editor to Lancet Oncology, not because I had any fascination about writing. Until like until that time, I hadn't published nothing. My publication was zero. Uh, but because that somewhat touched me and I just wanted to express my feelings. And I just wrote a letter to editor saying uh, that the title was Cancer Care and Research in India. What does it mean to Nepal? Um, and I sent it as a correspondence to Lancet Oncology. And to my surprise, they accepted it. Right? And so my very first attempt in life was accepted <laughs> at Lancet Oncology. So that really pleased me. And I was very happy about it. And, and after that, I... I, I maybe I got excited about it, and in one of the other journal clubs, one of my colleagues was presenting about uh, a trial in Japan about delivering bad news, uh, um, about teaching skills to physicians about delivering bad news. So 
uh, it was trying to say that giving training to doctors on how to deliver bad news makes a difference, which is a good take home message. But while going through the trial, I found that there was a number of uh, things that could be questioned about the trial. And this was in JCO. Uh, so again, like uh, I was just trying to learn you know how to read trials properly. I had no these. Uh, I had none of these skills before. So, tried to think of a of a new novice with just trying with just learning alphabets, and he starts seeing words, and he becomes excited, right? Because he has known these alphabets. So I was learning the alphabets of of uh, research, and so now I could start seeing words in different places. Uh, and so I saw a number of errors in that uh, study, a number of things that could be questioned in that study. And this was published in JCO. So again, I, I wrote a letter to editor to the JCO saying like this, this um, uh, things about this trial should be clarified. And again, they accepted it. So my first, <laughs> uh, my first two attempts, both were later to editors, but one was in Lancet Oncology, the other one, in, one was in JCO and both of them were accepted. I felt, I felt extremely good. And I think like one of the editors in JCO who read that later, or who was a part of making that decision, must have been an editor in Annals of Internal Medicine because immediately I started getting peer review requests from Annals of Internal Medicine for similar type of work. And again, the first peer review request in my life that ever came was from Annals of Internal Medicine. And so I was intimidated because <laughs> they didn't know that I was just a, second year, third year trainee in medical oncology. Uh, like, <laughs> I did not have any publications, <laughs> but Annals of Internal Medicine was asking me to, me to review uh, this big work written by these big names. I was intimidated. So the first peer review took me like uh, two weeks of dedicated work. I really read the paper well, and I really read extra references, and I really worked hard on that. And then I, I submitted the review and probably they liked it because they kept saying, sending me reviews, peer review requests. Um, and at the end of the year, they sent me a certificate saying that I was the, I was the top uh, reviewer for the journal. And like nice. these, these small successes in the very beginning, I think that's what motivated me. Uh, so I guess there is some amount of luck because if I think about it, if those initial attempts uh, were rejected, then probably yeah. I would have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the first, I want to talk about the first full paper that I wrote. So the first full paper that I wrote was a review article on opioid induced constipation. And the background story is that I was seeing a patient uh, who had to be on opioids for cancer pain, but he had uh, such a severe constipation uh, that he started to say that I'm better off with cancer pain than with this uh, constipation from opioid. I'd rather take cancer pain than, than take opioid. So it was a touching moment, like how helpless are we that we can't even manage a simple constipation from opioid. So I started to read everything that was available in the literature about opioid constipation and how to manage it. And so this is not uh, from the viewpoint of publishing an article. I just read it for myself. Uh, and at the end, I, I felt like whatever notes I had, they, it made sense to me to publish it because there might be other people like me who needed a short guide to how to manage opioid constipation. And so I sent it to a couple of journals and, and that was my first test of rejection. They said, uh, this is like a very narrow focus. So 
uh, we, are, we don't want to publish it, but it uh, ultimately got published in the Scandinavian Journal of Gastroenterology. Uh, um, and, but yes, it got published and uh, people started citing it. So that was my initial baby steps. Uh, so that's sorry, I'm giving I'm giving oh, such a long answer to your question. Such a wonderful to <laughs> hear your journey. And, you know, I mean, I think you bring up a good point in terms of the element of luck. Sometimes if you get several rejections, you say, you know what, I, you lose motivation, you get acceptance and, and you get more motivated. Well, I'm very happy that they published these two, because obviously you went on to do a lot of amazing and excellent work that many of my listeners and and readers of these journals really appreciate. Um, but uh, Bishal, what I want to talk to you about a little bit is the accelerated approval pathway. You've been, you're interested in this, um, and you've also written a lot about it uh, over the past several months. Uh, um, you know, send me the, I would like to link in the podcast notes to the papers, so at least folks can also look at them as well as on the YouTube channel. But um, so let's start by, uh, first of all, I wanna. I want you to briefly just summarize to listeners what is the accelerated approval uh, pathway, and then I want you from there we can talk into uh, the work that you published and some of the critique that you um, uh, you mentioned about the pathway. So, can you give us a little bit of a background into about the accelerated approval pathway and why it exists when it starts? Just like a, briefly, because obviously it could take a long time. But. Yeah. So accelerated approval pathway was introduced by the FDA in 1992. That was at the time of the HIV/AIDS crisis, because obviously patients could not be waiting for these life-saving drugs uh, forever, so they wanted early access to the drug. Uh, so accelerated approval pathway was created in response to that, uh, and this pathway simply means that okay, we can give a drug approval on the basis of preliminary evidence, but you have to confirm the evidence. You have to confirm that it does improve clinical benefit if after approval, through a post-approval trial. So that was a nice compromise between efficacy standard and safety. Early approval on the basis of surrogate endpoints, uh, which are reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit, and then confirmation of benefit in the future after the drug is already in the market. Now, this uh, pathway is mostly used for cancer drugs, uh, although we have seen some controversies of this being used in like neurological <laughs> disease recently. Uh, so it's mostly used for cancer drugs. And in case of cancer drugs, what it means is the drug will be approved on the basis of uh, showing benefit in surrogate endpoints like response rate or progression-free survival. But the industry has to conduct a, a, a confirmatory trial to confirm the clinical benefit of the drug so the controversy is about what constitutes clinical benefit. So for patients with cancer, improvement in longevity, overall survival, or improvement in quality of life uh, constitutes a clinical benefit because that's what the patients care about, to have a better and a longer life, even if not both, at least one of that, better life or a longer life. So my stance are the, you know, in, the, in the paper I write, I ask that cancer drugs should have the evidence that they do either one of them, if not both, improve OS or improve quality of life. But the problem is these drugs are getting approved. They get accelerated approval on the basis of surrogate endpoints and the confirmatory trial also continues to use surrogate endpoint. So it does not use overall survival or quality of life. So if the confirmatory trial is also using the same surrogate endpoint, then how is that confirmation of clinical benefit? 
That's one question. And, and there are a couple of other debates about uh, accelerated approval. One is what low level of surrogacy is okay for accelerated approval? Um, um, is any uh, surrogate endpoint okay? Um, or should there be at least some standards? And three, if we see that the confirmatory trial does not confirm clinical benefit, what do we do with that drug? Shouldn't they be withdrawn automatically? And four, is it okay for a drug that has accelerated approval to cost even more, if not as much as the drugs that have been approved through the regular pathway? So let's go through the first one. So the first point you're making is you would like to have a confirmatory trial. Yeah. Which is which is what the in fact this is by law, right? The accelerated yeah. approval pathway by law, it says you need to have a confirmatory trial. So my question is. Before you, if, if I'm a sponsor, if I'm a company and I'm launching a confirmatory trial, don't I usually discuss this with the FDA ahead of time before I launch this? I mean, isn't that something that uses dialogue between me and the regulatory body and saying, this is the type of regular uh, confirmatory trial I'm doing, and then the FDA could react to this? Yeah, th that is what is uh, what usually happens, and that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, so, so it's not entirely on the industry. It's also on the regulators to ask the industry to do trial with the meaningful endpoints and not just be happy with surrogate endpoints. And to, to that uh, point, uh, it's also interesting to note that, you know, there are a number of confirmatory trials and your work also uh, shows that you published this in JAMA Oncology about uh, several confirmatory trials being delayed or pending and, and not being completed in time. Um, so, you know, the, the mandate is that there should be a confirmatory trial confirming clinical benefit within a reasonable amount of time. So this sort of flexibility should not be misused. Reasonable amount of time cannot mean a decade, right? And uh, confirmation of clinical benefit cannot mean the same surrogate endpoint. And uh, to, to that point about discussion between the regulators and the industry, in fact, data show, and this is the data coming from the FDA itself, so that for those accelerated approvals whose confirmatory trial is already underway at the time of accelerated approval, they confirm clinical benefit several years before compared to the trials that start confirmatory trial after getting uh, accelerated approval. Okay, but, uh, but I guess, so, so one of the arguments is you would like the FDA to tell the sponsors, okay, if this is the type of confirmatory trial you're doing, it has to be a different than surrogate endpoint. Yeah. I guess one of the questions, Bishal, that I always struggle with, and, um, and I don't know the answer, but, I, but I'm intrigued by it, and I'd like to get your opinion. Obviously, uh, you bring up a good point, which is what patients care about uh -huh. is having a longer life or a better life. Uh -huh. Nobody could argue with that. Uh -huh. But but I've seen on social media as well as sometimes when you talk to patients and families, and I know when we talk about progression-free survival or time to disease progression, uh -huh. and, 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 and a lot of patients say, well, living progression-free or without disease is very meaningful to us because I don't have to go to the office. I don't have to sit in the chair. I don't have to get CBCs very often. It's yeah. not necessarily quality of life metric. Like it's not really the, the traditional uh, usual PROs that we talk about. That's an excellent question. Yeah. yeah uh, I, and I've heard that from patients actually. Yeah. Saying, what, 
for me, having six months where I don't have to come to the office every week or every two weeks is meaningful to me. And we, we don't capture that. Yeah, so you asked an excellent question. That is, isn't delaying progression inherently meaningful in itself? Isn't that a clinical benefit in itself? Uh, I have two arguments to that. One is we actually tested this. We also thought that delaying progression might improve quality of life. So delaying progression in itself is meaningful. But our work, which was published in 2018 in International Journal of Cancer, showed that delaying progression did not necessarily translate to improved quality of life. The correlation was very weak. Why is it so? Because I think it's, it depends on how we are defining progression. We are defining progression in trials on an arbitrary cutoff limit of 20%. So there is no reason why your patient should feel different when the tumor has grown by 25% versus 19%. And the other um, thing is, I think what is more meaningful than just PFS uh, could be symptomatic PFS. If we are talking about symptomatic PFS, then yes. Uh, delaying symptomatic progression is meaningful. But if we are talking about that arbitrary 20% benchmark, then that probably is not meaningful. But I'm talking about not even tumor related. I'm talking something that is not related to the cancer at all, like just regular life activities. I guess whenever we talk about quality of life, what I usually see, and maybe I'm wrong, but what I usually see in the metrics are usually the symptoms. The uh -huh. nausea, the vomiting, the fatigue, and so on. I don't see other things captured. I think if I'm progression-free, uh -huh. uh -huh. although the survival is different, but if I'm progression-free, I may be able to take more vacations. I may be able to travel. I may not spend time in the office. I may be able, I don't know, like there are other elements. Yeah, it's a, little, it's a little paradoxical, Zadi, in that that also means you are not getting the treatment because you want to take vacation, you want to be away from treatment, you want to take treatment break. Right, right. Right, uh, and absolutely, like if the, that's, that's I would 100% I would agree with that, if overall survival is going to be the same, then you should be able to take as much treatment break as possible right. uh, without being subjected to treatment. Uh, we talk about time toxicity nowadays, like Chris Booth had written a paper about it, right? So there is the concept of time toxicity, financial toxicity, this, several things that matter to patients that are not captured by our classical uh, quality of life instruments. You know, scan anxieties. Like, right, uh, right. Th there are so many dimensions to uh, living a life with cancer that we can't even fathom completely, even as oncologists. So you have to be a patient to, to actually uh, like I always, I always try to think if I were a patient and you, know, and you know my philosophy, which is similar to yours, we all are going to be patients, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. With either current patients, future patients, past patients, we may have different diseases. But I always think if a doctor tells me I'm going to give you this chemotherapy, the survival is the same. But if you take that chemotherapy, the likelihood of needing another line of chemotherapy will be longer. So I'm delaying the time to another treatment and so forth. I may see a merit in that because the delaying the time, like I know I may live three years. Mm -hmm. But having more treatment-free intervals still is meaningful to me, despite this, the, the, the three years. But that is not treatment-free interval, because you are getting that uh, treatment, the first-line treatment, right? So you are not necessarily... Uh, the, and the other way to think about it is if you can achieve the same survival by getting uh, the same treatment in second line, 
or or especially in the setting of you know adjuvant versus metastatic treatment then why expose uh, even from regulator's point of view why expose 100% of the patients to the drug when in fact only only 60% may need it yeah no you bring i mean it's a good point i i guess i we don't know we we don't know who like giving adjuvant therapy i mean you treat gi cancers Mm-hmm. You get patients with colon cancer who have positive lymph nodes. Mm-hmm. You totally know that some of these patients would have been cured by surgery alone. I mean, we already know that. Yeah. But we end up giving adjuvant therapy to everybody with node positive disease because, you know, because we don't know which ones of these don't need it. You know, maybe in the future we will, but today yeah, we there, there have been good progress in, in colorectal cancer. Yeah. Trying to de-escalate adjuvant therapy. Absolutely. Yeah, through the idea collaboration, but I think I think that that's a benchmark that uh, we all should be aspiring to. Instead of just uh, going through the mantra of uh, more is better, more is better, let's give yeah. all possible drugs to all possible patients. I think we should carefully think uh, like uh, who are we overtreating and uh, what are the consequences of overtreating and if we can safely de-escalate treatment in in certain subgroup of patients. Let's talk about uh, withdrawing treatment, um, like uh, pulling the drug off the market if you don't really get the confirmatory trial. Is this happening right now, not happening? What's going on there? Yeah, so for a number of years, nothing was happening. Like trials were, uh, like drugs were getting accelerated approval. They were failing confirmatory trials, right, left, and center, but no action was being taken. In uh, this year, the FDA decided to take a look they had a big ODAC meeting, the famous ODAC meeting, uh, where they discussed the fate of these drugs. Uh, and like certain cases where uh, the confirmatory trial like clearly failed, uh, there were a couple of instances of withdrawal in the past, uh, in recent years, um, like olaratumab in sarcoma. Uh, it got accelerated approval, but in the announced phase three trial, there was absolutely no benefit in any of the metrics and like the, the company voluntarily withdrew the, the approval. But with these recent immunotherapy drugs, it has not been voluntary. It has been forced upon by the FDA, although technically it qualifies as voluntary withdrawal because the FDA did not have to revoke it, but the FDA had to force the industry to, to withdraw the approval and the FDA had to commence an ODAC committee meeting um, and then vote on, in the ODAC. But the thing is, if the legislation says Accelerated approval is contingent upon verifying clinical benefit in a confirmatory trial, and the confirmatory trial fails. Does there even need to be an be an ODAC discussion? Isn't that the whole philosophy of accelerated approval? Like, and therefore, in our in our JAMA uh, internal medicine paper, we write that for accelerated approvals, at the time of accelerated approval, it should be agreed upon that if the confirmatory trial, this will be the end point of the confirmatory trial. And if the confirmatory trial fails, it, it will be automatically revoked so that there will be no drama about uh, people arguing, oh, should this be revoked? Should this not be revoked? Uh, this should be all decided a priori at the time of accelerator approval. This is going to be the confirmatory trial. This is going to be the end point. And by legislation, if you fail the end point, you need to pull the drug off the market. I think uh, sometimes they come back to you, the FDA comes back to you, it's like, well, if we do this though, are we hurting some people who may benefit like a subset analysis of something? What do you say to that? 
Yeah, so those are the arguments to be made by the industry and not by the regulators, I think, <laughs> because it makes sense to make those uh, arguments uh, from the perspective of industry who wants to keep the drug in the market uh, despite not being able to so benefit. Um, yeah, I, I heard those uh, debates in the ODAC meeting. I, I, I listened to the ODAC meeting with interest. And some of the uh, arguments that were being made were... Uh, were very troubling because if because this is the highest level policy making meeting and if uh, in that important meeting people are making arguments that are not based on science then then it's uh, it's painful because some of the arguments people are making were like maybe it is beneficial in a subgroup that uh, we still do not know about uh, but if that's the case then you have to prove that it is beneficial in a subgroup you can't just guess and people are citing personal examples. Oh, I had a patient who did really wonderful, but I guess you could say that with even olaratumab in, in sarcoma. Uh, you might have one or two patients who did really well, and people are saying there is an unmet need. But the funny thing is for the same disease, for the same indication, there were two drugs being discussed. So the mere existence of one drug means there is no unmet need for the other one, right? <laughs> and uh, unmet need does not mean you fulfill that need with drugs that are actually proven to not improve outcomes. Unmet need means there is a need for a, for a, for a drug that, that benefits the patients. It does not mean that you just fulfill the unmet need with any Tom, Dick, and Harry drug that uh, does not benefit the patient. Uh, and then there was also a question of, uh, uh, you know, some of the, some of, the tri trials and discussions were mind-blowing, mind like atezolizumab in triple negative breast cancer, the original trial that led to accelerated approval in PASN-130. It showed OS benefit because it violated its own statistical principle. The statistical plan was hierarchical testing. If the ITT was negative, subgroup analysis will not be done in pdl one The ITT was negative, but still they did a subgroup analysis, and now they're saying, oh, there is a benefit. But the confirmatory trial in person 131, it showed that there is absolutely no benefit. And then people are arguing, maybe this is false negative without, without any evidence. Uh, when in fact, the previous trial was false positive because it was against the statistical yeah. principles. Yeah, it's very interesting. Tell me about, you have a lot of interest in, me and you have talked about this and you, you wrote about it. So, so okay. Before we go, into, I want to talk about the conflict of interest piece, but I want to I want to still hone into the various points we talked about withdrawing the drug from market. We talked about the trial, the confirmatory trial, the surrogate endpoints. There are two other points you wanted to highlight, and then I want to move into the conflict of interest theory that you had, as well as some of the uh, opinions you have into how conflict of interest might impact some of the regulatory decisions. Yeah, so I think uh, we are planning to discuss four uh, papers that uh, we published recently. Yeah. One was about one was the BMJ paper about uh, regulatory and clinical consequences of accelerated approval drugs that failed to improve the primary endpoint, and we have discussed um, some points about that. I want to make it clear that this is not about not improving overall survival. This is not even about OS. This is about the trials failing to improve their own stated primary endpoint. They themselves said this will be our primary endpoint and failed in their own primary endpoint. And still, these drugs are in the market. So what's the point of doing the trial? If you do the trial, you have a primary endpoint, you don't achieve it. Yeah. And no issue. Exactly. exactly. Right. That's why it's, it's hard to understand. And so, and once the trial fails, 
instead of withdrawing the approval, what you do is you, you convene a meeting and, and ask seven people what do we think we should do. And if five people say, let's put it in the market, it stays in the market. So that's like, you know. Uh, Why do the trial? Why do the trial? Yeah. Right? As, as a physician, like we have to pass so many exams for getting our medical license, right? Uh, let's say I fail my medical license test, but then they convene a, a group of five people and they ask, should we shall get a medical license? And three people say yes, and then I can get to practice. <laughs> okay, well, I like that. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so so um, why why is that? Like, is this so, so basically whenever the drug fails a confirmatory trial, it's not withdrawn automatically. It's usually yeah. reviewed after that by ODAC. Yeah. And then ODAC is composed of how many people usually? I think most uh, in this recent meeting, there were around like nine people because most of the votings were seven, two, five, four. And you, your concern is that there could be some conflict of interest in the voting members? Uh, that is that is one of the concerns, but that's not the only one. I think uh, there is a lot of things uh, here like there is the issue of, uh, uh, you know, a regulatory capture, like the industry is so much interested in getting the decision one way, but the, but, but the opposite side of the group does not have so much of emotional vested interest, right? Like uh, the opposite side of people are doing things that they think are, are the right thing to do. They don't have any, any uh -huh. vested financial and emotional interest, but the industry has big interest to get the decision swayed one way. Right. So how do we... And there is the issue of conflict of interest. But the most surprising was, as I was saying, I listened to the debate between people and, and it seemed like many some of the people did not even understand like basic scientific principles. Uh, so the conflict of interest you're referring to is not the conflict of interest of their voting members, the conflict of interest between industry and, and ODAC. Uh, yeah, and I like the conflict of interest of the voting members is also an uh, an important point uh, but uh, and and i'm concerned about that but i don't want to paint it as a consequence of just the odac members having conflict of interest i think it's it's a it's it's a bigger uh, agenda than that so that was uh, the one thing and and the other other thing i wanted to talk about uh, which ties into this is uh, and we wrote about that in our JAMA internal medicine paper as well, is the issue of pricing of cancer drugs. What I can't understand is a cancer drug that has been approved on the basis of response rate and a cancer drug that has improved overall survival by, by six months, how can they cost the same? <laughs> but, but the reality is that this, this drug on the basis of response rate in fact costs more than that overall survival. Yeah, you, 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 keep trying, you keep trying to want to make sense out of these things. <laughs> Certain things don't make sense, but 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 that but that's a good point though. Look, yeah. let me push back on that. Mm -hmm. Can I push back because it's yeah, helpful. yeah, absolutely. I can push back. Yeah. The problem is once you get into into this comparative effectiveness, uh -huh. it becomes a little bit tricky. I'm not arguing about response rate versus survival. So uh -huh. let me give you an example. So let's say a drug uh -huh. has an overall survival benefit of four months. Mm -hmm. statistically significant, and we can argue as clinically significant. Mm -hmm. There's another drug comes in with an overall survival with eight months. Mm -hmm. Are you telling me I should double the price if the first one with four months was $25,000 a month? Uh, are you going to give me a carte blanche? I could do $50,000 a month? 
No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about like comparative benefits of the drugs. I'm talking about drugs that are based on surrogates, like low no, quality I evidence. I know, but once additional you that, approval. But once you and, do that, you go into into uh, no, no, that 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 value based pricing and conditional approval is different because conditional approval can be revoked. Like we we saw so many drugs that are withdrawn, right? But and we have already spent millions of dollars on those drugs. How are we going to get that money back? We won't. Right. So who, who is supposed to pay for drugs that ultimately failed? Right. Uh, so drugs that ha- are under conditional approval status, they should cost less than drugs that are under full approval status. No, no, I hear what you're saying. Well, what I'm saying is if you do that, mm-hmm. then then you can you can you can translate that into drugs that get the full approval status. They also have different tiers. Mm-hmm. So you can say the surrogate approvals, they should cost less than the regular approvals. And then the regular approvals should also have different tiers. The one that do two months versus four months versus eight months. I'm just saying, once you start uh, doing things this no, way. No, I, I, I hear you. And value-based pricing is an important topic. And I think it's, it's difficult to discuss the nuances that can happen for cancer drugs under value-based pricing here. But... Uh, what I'm trying to ask is a little different, I think. Uh, instead of value-based pricing, this is about the level of evidence-based pricing and drugs that can potentially be withdrawn, drugs that are conditional, uh, should in no world cost more than drugs that are not conditional and are fully approved. Uh, Very good point. And, and that, is a, that is a suggestion we make to the Medicare as well. And, and I think uh, uh, that suggestion also has a clause that if the conditional approval drugs cannot fulfill uh, confirmation of benefit within a given number of time, then again, uh, that should affect their pricing. There should, like, there should be some penalties, right? Uh, right now, there are, there are no penalties, and, and, and that's the problem. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the other point that I was uh, trying to make uh, in regards to this accelerated approval agenda is what is the level of validation of surrogacy that we require, right? Because we have seen that the same surrogate endpoints are being used for regular approval. The same surrogate endpoints are being used for accelerated approval. If you say PFS is good enough for, uh, regulatory, for, for regular approval, then you also see PFS being used for accelerated approval. Uh, you even see full approval based on response rates. I'm worried, Charlie, that one day we might be wishing for PFS. Because nowadays you see that everything is getting full approval, not even conditional, on the basis of response rate. So we might come to a day when we might think like, oh, I wish I had PFS data on this drug. Uh, because uh, the reason I'm, I'm worried is, like, what's the, what's the benchmark? And shouldn't we know about it? Is 30% response rate in 20 people good enough for accelerated approval, for, for full approval? Nobody knows. And so you see that these things are happening. What do you say to, um, and I've seen some of this chatter on social media and all that, what do you say to folks who might tell you, look, uh, the FDA is not going to prescribe the drug. Mm -hmm. They will approve the drug because they want to provide access. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly some patients that might benefit from this drug that we approve based on the response rate. It is your job as the clinician, as the physician who is treating the patient to make a determination whether this drug is appropriate for that patient that you're seeing in the room. But if we don't approve that drug, 
you won't even have that choice to make it. Even if you have one patient out of 10 that you see in clinic that might benefit, that is one patient and you make that call. You don't have to prescribe it to everyone. You know, we, we make it accessible and then it is upon you to exercise your clinician hat and make a determination based on the patient that you see next door. There are two things, Nadi. I think uh, you may recall there was an uh, interesting meta-analysis, I think a decade ago, I'm trying to update that, on response rate of placebo in clinical trials. Even placebo seem to have like a 2% response rate. So there are two out of 100 people will, will respond even to placebo apparently. Uh, and the other thing is, why, why do we even need regulators then, right? Like uh, if we let, um, like, there is a potential chance of benefiting from, from any chemical like one in 100 patient might benefit from any chemical, but we don't allow like uh, so many other, other practices to uh, become mainstream or to become funded because they are not based on science. The, like I, I, I have even to take this argument to extreme, I have even heard some people say that, uh, you know, we don't even need EFDA. Uh, it could be just like a Yelp-like system, like you, like <laughs> users give ratings, right? <laughs> Yelp, <Yeah, laughs> I like that. Yeah, exactly. If, 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 who... uh, if Vinay Prasad is listening to this, he will have a heart attack. <laughs> no, this is a serious argument that, that uh, is being made in some circles that we don't even need uh, regulators. We can, uh, like the, the market can control itself based on how many ratings a certain drug gets from, from its patients. Uh, uh, but I guess we have regulators for a reason, you know, to control uh, the practice of, of medicine, the practice of, of oncology, because uh, you know, we have seen so many practices in the past that are not in patients' benefit. And uh, even now we are seeing so many interventions that are being withdrawn. We are witness to the recent controversy of uh, aducanumab in, in, in Alzheimer's disease. And recently we are seeing news that uh, it might lead to uh, cerebral hemorrhage in, in some patients. Um, so we have regulators in order to safeguard not only the efficacy side of the equation, but also the safety side of the equation. And uh, the other problem is all of us who are in the practice of oncology, we do not have the bandwidth to analyze all the critical trial data and, and make an informed decision ourselves. We are, we, are, we are busy people. So we rely on regulators who have that capacity, who have that expertise to do that job for us and to tell us that, okay, we think this drug is good enough in terms of efficacy and also safe enough for our patients. If we expected all our oncologists to evaluate all those trial data, and many of these trial data are hidden, right? So many data that the FDA sees, we are never, never able to see that data. Um, so there, is, there will be no accountability and we'll be just practicing blind. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. So what, what else? There was another element, I think you published that we we're gonna talk about. You had several, several of these uh, papers that we wanna talk about that are all honing on the same thing, X-ray approval, conflict of interest and, and drug pricing, which is really interesting when you bring the price um, based on the regular approval, based on the uh, um, uh, uh, surrogate endpoints. Any other elements that uh, we were, you we, we wanna mention to listeners? Uh, no, I, I guess we have discussed much about accelerated approval. Um, yeah, the, the last point was about conflict of interest based on our <laughs> journal of NCCN paper about conflict of interest of people who write editorials in, in major oncology journals. And there what we find is 
the authors who had direct conflict of interest. Direct means having conflict of interest with exactly same company whose drug is being discussed in the editorial. Uh, so if the authors had direct conflict of interest with the same industry, then they were more likely to write an unduly favorable editorial for the drug, uh, which is not surprising. But what is surprising is why is the oncology community allowing this? Like if I'm not talking about any conflict of interest, I'm talking about conflict of interest with the exact same company whose product is being discussed. Like, is, do we mean to say that there are no other oncologists in the world without uh, conflict of interest, or at least without conflict of interest with the exact same company? Uh, like, uh, were there only those two people in the whole world who could write that editorial? I mean, come on, you can find so, so many people as a, as a uh, journal editor to ask them to write uh, an unbiased conflict of interest. Yeah, um, I don't have a, I, I, I don't know why that's really uh, chosen. Hey, before I let you... My, my, my daughter goes to a dancing class and if they make me the jaws of a dancing competition in which she's performing, <laughs> she's going to win. Of course she will. She better win. Um, <laughs> before I let you go, um, I have one other element and hopefully this won't take a lot of time. I know I've taken a lot of your time, but you're practicing in Canada. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you've been very critical of the FDA and, and you published a lot on that. Um, I know maybe this is a completely different podcast because I'm very curious about the regulatory aspects in Canada. I haven't seen you write about it uh, unless I missed some papers that you've written about this. Um, how is it there? Is it, is it up to your satisfaction as a critic, as, as a researcher, uh, or should I, or do, is it, too much to explain. That's a different podcast by itself. <laughs> no, no, you, you know, like I did publish one big paper about the Canadian uh, cancer drug reimbursement system. It was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Uh, um, and we uh, look at cancer drugs that are uh, reimbursed uh, in Canada. So it's a little different from US. We have Health Canada that gives approval. That means you can use the drug but uh, that does not necessarily mean that the drug will be funded. So for funding, it has to go through what we call CADAP, Canadian Agency for Drug and Technology in Health. This is what the US is missing. They only have the FDA that just gives approval. There is no agency that looks at the cost effectiveness and, and, and value of the drug. So CADAP does that. Uh, and we looked at the drugs that were submitted to CADAP uh, for reimbursement. And we looked at drugs that got reimbursed versus drugs that failed to get reimbursement decision uh, or got a negative decision. And we found that there were important differences. And we, like, and we also compared those findings with what's, uh, what's happening with the US FDA. And the bottom line message was that Canada is doing a, a much better job than the US in uh, allowing drugs with uh, major clinical benefit to be in the market and uh, filtering out drugs with minimal benefit. Uh, so Canada is doing a better job, but the, the filter is, is porous. It's not perfect because we are also allowing some low value drugs to seep in through um, and to be uh, used uh, consuming public funds. So we are filtering out many low value drugs, but we are still letting some low value drugs into the market. That was the bottom line. Uh, message compared to the US. And one interesting finding I'll tell you is that there were, I, I forgot the exact number, but there were several cancer drugs 
that were approved in the US that was not funded in Canada, but there was not a single example of the opposite. There was not a single drug that was approved in the uh, that was approved in Canada, but not approved in the US. Yeah, well, we are at the forefront, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> obviously. We don't want to be beaten by some Canadians. <laughs> there you go. I, lo I lost all of my Canadian listeners. No, I hope I have <laughs> Uh, Bishal, this was really great. I, I really appreciate um, uh, your, your your work and and what you're doing. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Tati. I, I always enjoy talking with you. Okay, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for joining me on Healthcare Unfiltered and for joining Dr. Bishal Giwali, who's always an amazing guest and always brings so much wisdom, value, and provocative thoughts, especially with healthcare policy to listeners. And uh, he just does amazing, amazing work. I'm a big fan, if you can't tell. I appreciate you letting me know how I'm doing on this show. You could do that by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me uh, a message to the website, www.chadinabhan.com. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, Chadinabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, to rate the show, and to write a brief review. Of course, please refer a friend and a colleague to the show. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Socrates. The only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.